run your business today like you're you're going to sell it tomorrow. You never know when the, the call is going to come or when someone's interested in, in buying your business and being prepared is, is essential. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest, Greg Lopez, is a very experienced operator and entrepreneur with a deep financial and accounting background. Greg's superpower is clearly his financial expertise, so you'll hear his warnings for CEOs who need to better manage businesses around cash flow instead of the PL. We discuss how buyers and sellers clash over working capital adjustments, which is one of the most contested issues in M&A transactions. You'll learn how Greg believes that M&A is the ultimate sales process and how being prepared to sell at any time is critical to taking advantage when the right buyer comes knocking. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Lopez. Greg, thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. I, this is going to be really fun. I, I know we've had some amazing entrepreneurs on the show, and most of them, they have really exciting stories and impactful advice around selling businesses. But I don't think any of them have kind of the experience you have in the role of leading the financial teams in M&A transactions as many times as you have. And I think really that's where the rubber meets the road in M&A transactions. So getting to hear your story and your advice is is really exciting. And so much so I didn't even think twice about, you know, asking Mark Cuban to come back in another time because this is your time slot. So thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks Todd. Happy to be here and talk about the experiences of uh, M&A. Great. All right. So let's, Greg, let's just start from the beginning. I want to hear your story, what kind of kicked off your career and of post-college, what you were interested in and what got you into the M&A world. Yeah, sure. So I graduated in 2009 from the University of Albany. I studied uh, accounting and business operations. So I chose uh, accounting and operations after some talks with uh, guidance counselors and um, professors and surprisingly did well uh, on the (laughs) you know, intro to accounting type courses and just continue to pursue the path. And uh, I'm really thankful I I, I did go that path and we could talk about the importance of accounting and how it Uh, drives everything else. Absolutely. I, you know, what a great start, right? Uh, I I feel like accounting, it's, that is the, the language of business. And I know a lot of our fellow founders, including me, I really didn't have that background. And you got to learn to speak that background. You don't need to be the accountant, but you need to understand what's going on and the levers that really move business. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, the the rebuttal, I'm not an accountant. When you're working with smaller businesses, it, it doesn't really cut it. You have to understand fundamentally how the at least the financial statements are prepared and how they connect. Right. Yeah. And it will help you not only run your business better, but speak about it at a higher level of sophistication when you're ready to sell or when you're ready to get acquired or, or whatever the situation is for the next step of your business. Right. Yep. Going even to get a bank loan, for example. Right. Um, so graduated in 2009, still recovering from you know the great financial crisis, um, did an internship at PricewaterhouseCoopers in their tax department. Didn't really see myself there, you know, longer term. Called my recruiter back up and I said, I gotta gotta get out of here. Do you have any other opportunities that might be a good fit for me? Uh, and she said, We got a, a role at a, a business called Gawker Media. It's a small, at the time, a small, you know, blog network of digital media properties, um, some that you might know. And they're looking to bring on uh, some supporting uh, finance talent for the controller and the accounting uh, department. So I 
basically jumped right in and, you know, within my first week doing all different types of, of roles that I never pictured I, you know, I would be doing uh, at a business. Uh, at the time, the company was about 75 people doing about 10, $15 million in revenue, grew my skill set, had a great uh, mentor and, and boss there, ended up leaving about two years into my, my tenure at Gawker. And I, I, you know, inherited the department. So I was the head of finance, oh, wow. um, at Gawker, um, and I built out a team there and we ended up growing that business to, uh, about 50 million in revenue and 350 employees worldwide. Um, so, okay. So what happens next? So it was a very famous, uh, lawsuit that occurs. Hulk Hogan, the wrestler sued us for posting some content that he felt was illicit and violated his privacy. Long story short, short, he gets a court date and, you know, wins a judgment against us. And it was, I think for over a hundred million dollars, which, which we didn't have liquid at the time. So I had to file bankruptcy. I always like to think of my career as lessons learned and what the biggest lessons learned were. And, you know, the lesson learned at Gawker was even if you have a great growing business, you always got to watch your cash, the story, the narrative, the morale was really high. My entire time there is one of the best places I've ever worked, but doesn't always translate to the financial health. And even though everything was going great on the surface and revenue was growing, the cash flow was lagging and we got ourselves into a little bit of a squeeze. And yeah. once I brought that to the attention of the team, you know, I was the most important person <laughs> at the company in every <laughs> yeah. meeting, you Help know, um, helping drive right. decisions a bit more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, come up with solutions, all those good things. But that being said, that's the biggest lesson. That's great. But that it is an interesting spot to be in, right? So all the heads turn to you. What do we do, right? You understand kind of the financial implications of everything that's happening. Did you have to kind of figure out bankruptcy, what that is going to look like as a process to, to close yeah. shop or, or not necessarily close shop, right? You're now going to sell this business off. And, and would you call this your first M&A experience going into bankruptcy and finding a buyer? Yeah, I didn't lead the M&A there, but we were talking to the eventual buyer, Univision, before the trial. So yep. there was you know, this idea, hey, you know, if this adverse outcome at the trial is a possibility, maybe we should just sell the business beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. And we were talking to Univision extensively. I was working with their transaction services team, really getting them up to speed on you know, how the business works. They ended up buying it out of bankruptcy, but prior we were becoming more tight around operating costs. So we did make some cuts to payroll. We did try and explore financing options. We raised some some debt that acted, you know, as like a bridge round to infuse the business with more cash. We looked at, you know, factoring receivables to try and speed up collections. All of those, you know, hey, we need cash, figure it out type of scenarios played out. And, and you know, the easiest thing to do is, you know, cut people, cut costs. It, it, it's easy from a you know, in Excel, cutting those, those costs, it's hard to execute on. And obviously you have that relationship with the people and the team. So it is difficult in that sense, easy from just, Hey, we need to save some money. So that's, you know, up until the, the trial, we were taking those steps to, to make sure we can get there. Got it. And so how, how many employees end up going over and can you tell me what that transaction really looked like? Um, they did an asset purchase out of bankruptcy they bought all of the properties except for Gawker. So Gawker was the the one that was the problem from yeah. the, the legal standpoint. All the other um, properties were kind of unrelated. They just fell under the, the holding company umbrella. Got it. And so what happened to you at that point? At that point, 
I was a bit tired of us being in the news and the, the, the <laughs> yeah. you know, you see the people you came up the ranks with starting to head for the exits. And I thought it was, you know, time for me to, to continue on my, my journey. So I was at Gawker for four and a half years, got put in touch with a former editor at, at Gizmodo, which is one of the bigger properties. And, and he started a, a business called The Wire Cutter. Mm-hmm. And The Wire Cutter was essentially a digital version of consumer reports, right? So it would review electronics, household, household goods, and, and say, hey, you can buy it here, and this is the best for most people. That was kind yep. of the, the tagline. This is the best TV for most people, the best Wi-Fi router for most people, right? So it was always a good quality product recommendation, and it was completely, the, the revenue channel was completely affiliate. Yep. So you joined him? I joined, I joined Brian and the team at The Wirecutter. They were about 25 to 30 people at the time doing a little bit under 10 million of revenue profitably and he bootstrapped the business so it was always hyper focused on managing a profit margin which is a you know incredibly smart thing to do as a founder who's you know <laughs> not from a financial background but but he knew that he he was bootstrapping he didn't want to raise money from investors so he had to maintain that profit and snowball the business but he had a good sense because of previous experience right how these businesses grow where the yep. where the points of investment were going to be needed and could manage that and then he had you on top of that right to really understand the the all the financial moves yeah so it's exactly. great i love i love hearing businesses that can get to kind of some semblance of profitability before they think about hey growth capital let's you know really go big so it sounds like that was grown very intentionally in a really smart way yeah exactly there was always you know scrutiny about when we're hiring the next writer to cover the next vertical so it really started with you know electronics and home goods and then it evolved into like gear for babies outdoor type gear sports type gear right and and now it kind of has a whole bunch of different verticals which will segue into who owns it now is the new york times so about six or seven months into my role there they came sniffing around to acquire the business yeah, so talk talk to me about that, right? So it's a, a it's a pretty quick ramp to to ten million. You're joining and you're growing the business now. Uh, New York Times is is knocking on the door. There must have been a previous relationship there, but can you take me through some of that? Yeah, Brian had relationships with the New York Times. Some of our content was syndicated in their paper and on their website occasionally, mm-hmm. but they were mostly focused on news and current events, right? So they didn't have a big, you know, kind of entertainment focus around sure. technology and, and gadgets. Also, the the revenue stream was very attractive. We were working in an affiliate revenue stream, right? New York Times didn't have that. They had yep. subscriptions. They had advertising. Affiliate was you know hot to trot then. So they felt that if they could bolt on the wire cutter property to their audience, they'd be able to blow it up. Yeah, that's um, great. I mean, it's very strategic, right? Exactly. Um, it makes makes a lot of sense. You know, you know the buyer. I think that's been one of one of your points in our conversations is really knowing who you sell to. And it sounds like you guys were identifying real strategic fit. But you know, what what really triggered, you know, that that sale? Um, I think Brian felt it was ready. And yeah. as a you know, journalist, he really admired the New York Times, couldn't find a couldn't think of a better home. Yeah. Right. So when they were seriously interested it felt like a, you know, a dream marriage for him and felt that all of the writers also would admire the New York times and would want to say that they worked there as well. So 
when the opportunity came and it got more serious and more serious and we ended up getting, you know, an LOI and term sheet, it was off to the races. Okay. So when you say off to the races, what does that mean? And how does your role really change when, when you go off to the races? Right. So my job was to really manage the process. We did hire a banker after we already got the term sheet and LOI. So more of sure. an advisory role. Yep. And I'm a fan of doing that because I do think there needs to be a buffer between, you know, the, the target and the mm -hmm. buyer. Yep. It just maintains the relationship a bit better. If I'm the one to have a hard sticking point, it's, yeah. it's, it's worse in my opinion for it to come from me than it is from the banker or the advisor to, to say, you know, the wire cutter says they can't accept those terms. You yeah. know, here are some other options that we can maybe work through. So, Gray, I think let me stop there because I think it's a that's a really important kind of teaching moment in that, you know, we talk to a lot of founders who will have inbound interest and say, you know, I really want to sell to these guys. And is it worth bringing in an investment banker? And, you know, what I tend to say to them is similar to what you just said is like, there's a good cop, bad cop element to this negotiation. And you don't want to have to have all of those really difficult conversations. You don't want to offend people. You don't want to be offended. You want to end up over on the other side on the best possible terms. And your investment banker can really help elevate you personally and professionally uh, to the other side and then negotiate on your, on your behalf. And so it always comes back to, well, why do I want to pay this person? Is it really worth what I pay? And it's not only the difficult conversations, but it really is that the best investment banker, one that understands your industry really, really well, with three phone calls can introduce competition into that sale process. And that group that's given you that inbound interest or given you an IOI that does not want that to happen. So they start behaving a little bit better and you get the things that you really need from a terms perspective. And I'd say the last thing that I would love people to understand is that if you bring an investment banker in in a process where you have inbound interest, you can really structure, and this is the one of the things that we do for our founders, is we help them structure the, the fee agreement to be far less expensive than if they were right. to actually sell to a buyer that the investment banker brought to the table. So it really, it is the best piece of advice. I'm glad you said you're in favor of it um, because I know founders, we're counting pennies and we want to save everywhere we can. But financially, it just makes a ton of sense to have that kind of advisor on your side. 100%. Even if you're dead set on selling to a buyer, you know they're the right party. Yep. Bringing someone in, and it doesn't have to be an investment bank at that point, but even a CFO advisor, someone who could act as the buffer, incredibly important for maintaining relations and incredibly important for that good cop, bad cop scenario, right? Yep. yep. Um, and just touching back on you, know, what does off to the races mean? So at Gawker, I overlapped with an individual who, who came in as COO. And one of his pieces of advice, he had some prior exits, was run your business today like you're going to sell it tomorrow at all times. And what does that mean? Well, that means get your stuff in order. Mm -hmm. Make sure you have very clean documentation. Make sure you have very clean organization. Make sure you're managing your financials. Because if someone comes knocking and they're really interested in buying your business, they want to understand and potentially move faster than you want to. And having all of that information to hand over shows really well. If you tell mm -hmm. them, hey, I need 30 days, I don't have the time, I need, right? Those opportunities come and go. When buyers are active in the market, they're ready to make deals. 
Yeah. And you never know when that call's coming or when someone's interested in your industry or when someone gets a referral. So doing the best you can, and I understand everyone has full-time jobs, CEOs and founders are focused on growing their business, but there should be some level of organization around just the basics, your corporate documentations, your employment agreements, your sales contracts, your financials, those items, handing them over quickly, at least buy you time, show really well, and can continue the conversation. Greg, I think that you can't underestimate that. And I think there's uh, certainly kind of the HR components of having your employment agreements in place um, and, and some very basics, but going a level deeper and really understanding kind of having a financial package that's ready to share under a non-disclosure really helps, right? Because buyers don't want to buy problems. They want to buy future cash flows with very few, you know, red flags and not having your business organized well certainly can hurt you. And like you just suggested, like can, you can miss out entirely on an opportunity. I often think that the CEOs are not in the position, in, at least in the early stage, to keep that that kind of good housekeeping regiment. And so somebody on your side of the house really kind of pays for himself in in spades by having that package ready to go when it's appropriate to share. So um, when do you think, how big does a company need to be to have a very professional kind of finance role you know, in-house? Uh, I'd say somewhere between the five and $10 million revenue mark. And it all depends on okay. the industry, right? Yep. And the size. When you have you know two dozen employees and you're doing that type of revenue, probably makes sense. Just to have somebody, you don't have to be a CFO, but have somebody who really owns the finances. Well, I, I don't want to jump necessarily to this, but you know, it plays very well into what you've decided to do most recently in your career, the company that you started, right? Having that outsourced CFO role. You know, and I'm starting to recognize more and more the value of that for early stage companies to be really kind of buttoned up there, be able to report to investors, their boards, make real decisions from financial truth. And in the case that you're approached by an acquirer, right? You got your ducks in a row. So I definitely want to, I want to get to that. But so you help Wirecutter, right? You sell to the New York Times. You've got a banker. Um, you're, you're VP of finance at that point. Yeah, right? I'm VP of finance, um, leading a small team of you know some folks on the operations side and the, the accounting side. We're dealing with the corp dev team and the CFO at the New York Times. Yep. And again, going back to the idea of every role I've had at any company, I, I like to take away a big, big lesson from. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so the, the lesson from this one is actually a really high touch topic. It's the idea of, of working capital and, and what that means. And yeah. before I go into that, given that we were an asset light business, meaning we didn't have machinery, we didn't have real estate, we we're, you know, digital media property, there wasn't much attention paid to this concept of working capital. And as we're getting to the finish line, you know, we have a sticker price, we have some terms of employment for our employees, we understand kind of what next steps are in integration. You know, the corporate development team drops some comments on, you know, working capital and, and, and what that means and what they're expecting. And it kind of did not align with, you know, Brian, who was majority shareholder at the time, you know, what his expectations were. Sure. And it was a bit of a learning moment for everybody. And honestly, you almost put the deal at risk. But we had a great outside advisor, uh, CPA, who is, you know, close contact of Brian, who is also the CPA for the business. And myself kind of like triangulated uh, a way to push forward 
and push back on some of the, the demands from the New York Times team, but ended up in a spot where everyone was comfortable at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Maybe, can you take a second just to explain working capital, right? It's really what's on the balance sheet, and we're talking about receivables, payables, inventory. Can you talk about that from the perspective of uh, the wire cutter? Yeah, sure. So, the analogy that I like is you know, you're buying a car, right? The car is what you're buying, and the gas in the tank's the working capital, right? A car that has a full tank of gas. Going to be much more valuable to you than a car that you know has an empty tank. Not from a dollars and cents perspective, but from where you're going, right? Mm-hmm. How to get from A to B, right? Any business transaction, the buyer is buying future cash flows. That's what they're ultimately Correct. buying and valuing, and that's what they want out of the deal. And that can come in a form of if it's IP. Well, there's some expectation that that software or that IP you're building will generate cash or generate value later mm-hmm. down the road, right? What working capital is, is it's it's the assets that are needed to continue generating those cash flows. So let's take it even one step further. What it typically is, is your accounts receivable, so what your customers owe you, mm-hmm. what inventory you have, if you have inventory, less what you owe your, your vendors and your suppliers. Right. Yep. That, that's kind of your networking capital. Most transactions are done on a cash-free and debt-free basis. So that just means... The seller keeps the cash and they pay off their debtors. Those are financing choices that the previous owner made. It's up to the new buyer to decide how they want to finance the business, debt, equity, whatever they want to do. But the working capital is what keeps the level of sales moving. It's what keeps the, you know, the engine running. It's what keeps the business moving forward. So you can't come into a situation where you get an offer to sell and you go, I'm going to call my customers and try and get them to pay me quicker. I'm going to take all my inventory out of my warehouse and sell it yeah. and then expect the buyer to pay the same price. Yeah. So you've, you have to make sure that this discussion is had early. And typically, what will be in an LOI is some term around you know, normalized networking capital peg. Mm-hmm. And what they say, uh, you know, normalize is usually not ever normal and it's never really defined. So you just kind of look at it, you brush over it and you're okay. Okay, cool. Yep. yep. Um, but think about a seasonal business that does really well during the holidays. They will have more inventory closer to the holidays on their balance sheet than they will in, you know, March. Mm-hmm. Right. So understanding what that peg is, factoring in seasonality, all is a process and you would take the peg, you know, the traditional way to do it is take a balance sheet, blow it out 24 months, do that calculation at a very high level, you know, inventory plus AR minus accounts payable, and then see kind of where you are at, at the target date of the transaction. Mm-hmm. Now there's a whole bunch of other nuance we can get into. And I, I think, uh, you know, I shared a, a great link for some content, uh, a YouTube video that explains this in much more detail. I think it's super helpful and consumable and that that would help the audience. That's great. I'll put that in the, the show notes. Um, yeah, I, the, the reason I asked you to explain it and thank you for doing it is that, you know, in every transaction, I think this is <laughs> the one that comes up every time is very hotly contested. The buyer sees it one way, the seller sees it, you know, in a way that's more advantageous to them. And then, you know, you, you agree almost you're kicking the can down the road post-transaction for a true up, right? And people can get surprised if they don't really understand what this is. 
And it, it's relatively simple, but there's constant disagreement. So it, it's a favor to everyone to get wise about this subject before deciding to sell your business. Right. And, and you don't always have to you know, know exactly how it's going. You just have to bring it up and yep. talk through kind of the mechanisms and, and what the buyer is looking for and what the seller is comfortable with, making sure they understand the concept so that you avoid those situations down the road. Yep. You agree on how it's calculated. Correct. Right. And then, then you know that you're going to do this at, at a particular point in time and everybody agrees how that calculation is going to, going to be made. Okay. So uh, thank you. I think that's a great learning from that transaction, but you know, you didn't stop there, right? You've got Gawker, then you've got Wirecutter, and now you're, what are you, you're moving out more into, even more into startup land? Yeah. So I took some time and I did a little bit of consulting here and there and ended up taking a full-time role at a company called Futurism. And uh, Futurism was uh, a media business. It still, it still is around today, just under different ownership. It's futurism.com. Focused on um, future science and technology trends that are affecting humanity. Hmm. And the angle with Futurism was it was going to use the data from the readers, so understand what readers were really engaging with from a, a content perspective, and then create physical products. So this was really you know, when e-commerce became super uh, accessible to everybody, you know, Shopify was, you know, really getting its footing in the space and Instagram and Facebook ads were driving um, huge amounts of traffic to e-commerce businesses, right? So mm -hmm. this is like 2016, 2017, like really e-commerce is really, you know, popping up everywhere. Everyone wants to be an e-commerce business. Sure. Um, so it felt comfortable for me to come from the media world, you know, futurism, was another media business, traditional mm -hmm. media model. I'd also have you know exposure to an e-commerce arm as well. So we ended up launching the first and probably our biggest success was a product called Gravity. So Futurism was the media business. Yeah. Uh, Gravity was a creation out of the data mining from Futurism. And Gravity was a sleep wellness brand with a hero product being a, a weighted blanket. As silly mm -hmm. as that sounds, if you ever go to the dentist and they put mm -hmm. the the x-ray cover on you, it kind of feels a little nice. Like that's the, the sensation. And there's actually a lot of science around um, why having some kind of weight releases certain feelings uh, of, you know, lower anxiety and lower stress. That's great. So <clears throat> we launched Gravity on Kickstarter, did you know, $5 million in 30 days in sales. And then we, you know, had our first, our first real success. So we had Futurism, which was a media business staffed around 40 folks. Uh, and then we had this, you know, experimental arm of e-commerce playing around with different ideas, you know, trying this like MVP, minimal viable product approach. That's why we launched on Kickstarter and didn't just invest into a whole bunch of inventory. We wanted to see if there was demand first for the products that mm -hmm. we're creating. So we had a business, right? We had, yeah. we had some success. Futurism being the traditional digital media model had a sizable audience, about 10 million readers a month, but the media model was shifting so much that it was really hard to monetize traditional way. And you need to be much higher readership to get some of the bigger brand deals. And we just were caught in this gray area. So it was expensive to run. We were paying a ton of people. And Gravity was, was growing with a very lean team. And it was profitable essentially since day one. So after you know doing the juggling act for a couple of years, we decided <clears throat> futurism was not was not a viable strategy going forward unless we raised additional outside capital. Uh, so we decided to to sell that property to someone who could really 
monetize it to the the best of its ability. That's great. So I, we get that uh, that question quite a bit. It's kind of like Series A or M and A, right? Do we raise capital or do we sell the business? And there are a lot of things that go into that decision. And I'm sure you're a big part of kind of laying out what valuations would look like, how much how much would be needed to invest in the company, what kind of dilution everybody would take. And you guys came to the conclusion that selling futurism uh, to Singularity University, right? Correct. Yeah. In in that particular sale, how how did that happen? Was it a, a, an existing customer, or you know, was it? Do you bring in bankers for it? How did you get that created? So many media businesses were consolidating at the time. Some of the smaller properties they were trying to find homes in, in bigger properties. We took an opposite approach. We knew that the valuations were really depressed when it was media eating up other media. So we mm-hmm. tried to say, hey, we have this audience. Who could we go to? That can monetize it better. And Singularity University at the time was running events. They're running um, digital education classes. They had a whole bunch of different revenue channels outside of media, totally separate. Mm-hmm. There was a previous relationship. One of our board members knew some of their board members. And we essentially bundled up the story that this property, Futurism, could be a great top of funnel for you to execute on your strategy. And by top of funnel, I mean just a wide sea of people who are interested mm-hmm. in fi- technology and science. Mm-hmm. And the core target customer for Singularity University is someone who's really interested in, in the future of technology and science to mm-hmm. learn more, to explore more, to attend events that cover those topics. So we got a premium valuation by pursuing that strategy versus just yeah. going to you know some kind of media roll up that was only focused on media businesses. You know what I love about that, Greg, is that it just it reminds me of the transactions that we get to to witness. Right, founders come to us, we build their M and A dream team with a investment banker that's right in their industry and knows their buyers, and that investment banker is able to tell the story right a little bit differently to each buyer this is why this property is of so much value to you and essentially you got that company uh, futurism positioned as hey this is a, a new marketing channel for you and we can model what this revenue is going to look for, uh, look for you downstream as opposed to saying here are a bunch of eyeballs and monetize it the same way that every other property is and by the way that is a declining business and so we take a lot of time in when we look at a business and we're, you know, we're doing one right now. And is it, is it advanced manufacturing or is it medical device? And we bring the best bankers from those two segments. And it could be software, how will call it like enterprise SaaS. It could have an element of all of those three. And when you bring in bankers from all of those sectors, the best ones, and you pit them against each other, you end up getting an idea just like you just described, right? And that creates just a far better outcome for everyone. And I'm sure Singularity University is like, we we could never replicate a marketing channel like this. We have to own this business. So that makes so much sense to me. Yeah, hopefully that, that is the way it actually happened. Um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, pretty close to it, right? Like the, the value of your asset or your business might 
appear differently to different buyers. And it's kind of like yep. the analogy, the bottle of water at Costco is, you know, 25 cents when you buy the whole pack. As you go to the CVS, it's, you know, $1.50. You go to the airport, it's $5, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on where the match of, you know, supply and demand is and who's buying and who's selling, right? The needs are different. So just reframing your mindset when you have your business, and it doesn't apply for everybody, but if there's an opportunity to think about a different path or a different buyer, to get that premium valuation or a different valuation that might be more attractive to you, it's a good opportunity to pursue. And that's exactly awesome. what we we executed on there. Okay. So you've separated away from futurism through the sale, but you've kept the gravity blanket. And and I remember that was actually one of the one of the first times that we met was when you were doing that. And yeah, it was kind of I don't know, honored that you would call me with all of that experience of like, hey, you know, let, let's talk about this business and where it's going to go. So yeah, tell us where, where did that go eventually? Yeah. So we were running it for a little over three and a half years. The original investors in Futurism, they were not necessarily investing in this kind of e-commerce endeavor. It, it was an opportunistic business line we pursued. Sure wasn't part of the original pitch. So, you know, they invested in a media business that was focused on science and technology, kind of aligning with some of their passions. Uh, and now they're left with a sleep wellness e-commerce brand that, yeah. you know, they don't really understand the industry. They don't really you know, care too much. It doesn't really speak to them. We were getting a little burned out running the business, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. It was a highly seasonal business. So about 70% mm -hmm. of our sales came in the second half of the year, most of that around holiday. So every year it was, you know, we'd brush up against holiday and then we'd hold our breath to make sure the sales are coming through to hit our you know, annual goals and, and hit the profitability and sell through the inventory we stocked. So mm -hmm. after one too many of those cycles, we decided, hey, this is a good time to potentially put the business up for sale, right? Yeah. We feel like we've grown it. Um, now it needs potentially a, a bigger home. Um, and we don't want to go out and raise, raise money to try and pursue some kind of really... Uh, wide wholesale strategy or develop a whole new product line. Mm -hmm. um, we, we just weren't interested in, in, in continuing that path and felt under, under a different ownership, it could, it could really flourish. So yeah, we, we've developed a bit of an expertise around selling consumer brands. And again, right, we're really just assembling the best investment bankers and, and team around that banker. But that has been a really a great category because it's not just e-commerce, it's consumer brand, right? And so you kind of have these and of two very valuable things, depending on how big the brand is. And my sense is you guys were part of kind of creating this, this category. So did you have real kind of brand recognition in that market that was of real value? Or really was this hey, going to be some multiple of EBITDA or sales? There, there was definitely brand recognition, but it was yeah. each year getting eaten away at. And yeah. that was also one of the motivations for selling, right? Yeah. Once you have an innovative product, give it six to 12 months, even sooner now, maybe three months, you'll start mm -hmm. seeing knockoffs on Amazon. Yep. Absolutely. Right? And then you can offer it at a much lower clip. So you guys are a little burned out. You've got competition, right? Some headwinds and you say, okay, we're going to go to market. Did you seek out an investment banker? Like how did you go, go to market? We, we started dipping our toes in the water with some strategics that we knew and held relationships with. So we did big programs with purple. We had a relationship with Casper we had some other relations with some of the more traditional players um, and tested the waters there. No one was particularly, you know, interested given that they were just dealing with their own, you know, business growth and mm -hmm. um, they had their own eye on their own balls that they were focused on. So 
what we did is decide to to bring on a banker. So we we spoke to a handful of bankers, uh, mm-hmm. and this is where I think you know Exitwise really can help founders streamline that process a bit more because you, you get a whole bunch of you know hey do you know a banker do you know a banker you get a whole bunch of mm-hmm. people connecting you and you don't really know and a lot of bankers are, are really just salespeople so they're, they're trying to convince you that they're the right partner and they'll throw numbers at you and you know being the prudent operators that that mike and myself were when we heard bankers say you're gonna you know we could sell this for 100 million we're like there's just no no way yeah like yeah, it's yeah. not gonna happen so we just know that you're blowing smoke right so we ended up i don't even remember how i got the referral we ended up working with a firm Consensus Advisors. Uh, they're go. based out of uh, Boston, and and Patrick, who is the banker, is, is based out of New York. And we met him at a coffee shop, and you know they have really great experience in the consumer space. And he told it how it is, right? He gave us a range that he felt comfortable with, right? Because the first question you're going to ask as a seller, how much you think we can get, right? And then you're either going to be disappointed, or you're going to be ecstatic, or you're going to be skeptical, I guess. And he gave us something that was, you know, right down the the middle of where we felt this business was actually worth. Engaged with him, started putting all the materials together, going to market, and a week later, COVID hits. Yeah. And everyone's shutting everything down. No one wants to do deals. No one's answering emails. Kind of put us in a little bit of a holding pattern. Okay. So, yeah. And and shout out to Consensus, right? That is a great group. I think that you have been through multiple M and A experiences now, so you know the value of getting the right banker kind of on your team. And certainly, we have experience with them, and they're fantastic. So, yeah, great that you made the right choice. I think a lot of founders, you know, if they've got a hot company, they're getting the, they're getting cold called by bankers, and they don't even know how to interview these, and they just ends up wasting their time, and they're getting the same from private equity. And so, you know, I appreciate what you said because we we really love taking that effort off of the founders' uh, shoulders, right? Let us talk to buyers. Let us talk to bankers. We know how to interview them. We know how to surround you with the right talent to just lower the risk of failed transactions and absolutely maximize your outcome. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you ended up with consensus. Okay, so but but you pause because of COVID, right? And of n- really, nobody's fault because of that. So what happens? How do you how do you pick it back up? How do you keep the business alive and pick that so, back up? Yeah, so that was March of 2019. So yep. we continued operating, <clears throat> and then markets started opening back up towards Q3, Q4. Mm-hmm. So we had a couple of conversations. They weren't super serious because it was still this you know COVID pause time. We had some conversations with folks and. Um, Ultimately, kept those relationships intact. Patrick was great at, at bridging the gap over a consensus. And then we decided we want to get the price that we want. Valuations are, are feeling a little bit of, you know, they're feeling a little bit compressed because of the uncertainty due to COVID. Uh, still pretty new at the time. But we know kind of what our number is. <clears throat> so we re-engaged with, you know, two or three of the, the folks that were, were interested and ultimately uh, ended going with, with one group uh, into exclusivity and felt that they would be a good home as a holding company. They owned a bunch of other brands and um, continued down the path to, to close, but it, it took quite a bit of time. It was, you know, mm-hmm. four or five months being in that process. And, and my mm-hmm. job as, you know, you know, CFO at that time, I leaned back in full time because it was just intense process. So I, I said, Hey, in order to keep the business moving along, to keep Mike, the CEO, out of the weeds, 
and to keep the team focused, I'm going to step back in um, and just help manage this process with the bankers. So, right. so that's what we did. And it took, you know, four or five months to get to the finish line. But ultimately, you know, we stuck to the number that we wanted. We wouldn't concede because even though we were burned out and we felt the pressure of competition, it was still a really good business fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And if we had to run it again for another year, we would have if we weren't going to get the price that we wanted. So even though there were, you know, hard negotiations to whittle it down, we, we, we stood strong and, you know, that's just classic. If you have leverage, use it. And our leverage was we'll run the business for another year and we'll go to market and potentially uh, a less volatile time. Let me ask you. So, I mean, you got so many lessons in this, right? You have got kind of a crash course in M&A and I'm really thankful that you're sharing it with all of us. It's it's this idea of knowing your value and and sticking to it, holding to that value because you know you have options. How did you come to that value? Because a lot of what we do at ExitWise is we're bridging that gap of emotion, unrealistic emotion, to finance that is actually going to occur. And uh, we're we're building tools that we share with founders of how to how to really understand your value. How did you guys come to a, a number? And you're coming from a fan finance background. So I know you have that edge, uh, but how did you know what your company was worth? And, and it sounds like consensus was on your side with that sticking to that number. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's a little bit more of an art than a science. So first and foremost, you got to make sure the stakeholders are comfortable with a number. And if they're being unrealistic, explain to them why. Thankfully, everyone on our side was, was being realistic. The, the easiest way is to look at comparable companies, right? Mm -hmm. Understand what recent transactions have occurred. But when you're in a smaller market and that information is non-public, it creates a little bit of, there's a little, uh, it's a gray area. You don't always get the exact information, but, but, uh, you know, consensus has resources and they have, you know, a network they can bank. Most bankers do. So people talk Mm -hmm. on the street and they know, um, what, what businesses are going for. So they know a range that, that seems fair. And then also thinking about it, right. When you're looking at, how businesses in this market are bought and sold, right? Like a discounted cash flow is not necessarily super no. useful. You're no. looking at a, a EBITDA multiple or an adjusted EBITDA multiple, and when a buyer, especially if they're you know more of an institutional type, like a private equity firm or some kind of roll up, um, they're looking to basically hold the business for five to seven years, and and they're kind of expecting to flip the business at a similar multiple of what they're buying it for. So all that being said, we just triangulated a bunch of data and felt that, you know, we're being fair in our price. We know what our EBITDA is. We know what the multiple of EBITDA is. We know how long probably you're expecting to hold this business, right? And what cash flows you're going to generate out of it. And we want to be paid for that number today. Right. That's a really sophisticated way and, and, and great way to look at it. You know, how the buyer is going to uh, benefit from this purchase. What are they willing to pay? Understanding their ROI profile, how long they're going to keep that business, what their, you know, expectations are is really critical. I think at the beginning, what you said that hits really home for me is that your investment banker, if they truly are industry specific and you ask five of them what this business is worth, they're all doing that comparative analysis. What uh, what businesses have traded that they have inside information on, 
right? Because they're the ones selling those businesses. So they know what buyers are paying. And what we love to do is when we get that opinion from five bankers for a founder, we might have outliers, but you start to see you know, where valuation settles. And, and to us, that is an indication that you're getting information like directly from the source that is non-public. Um, so we feel like when we settle in on valuation and try to align founders and bankers with what this outcome is going to look like, we're coming at it from a real advantage in the market because of the, the network that we've built. Uh, one other comment I want to make is just, you can sense the fatigue when the deal gets drawn out and there mm-hmm. is almost this pressure to just, you know, get the deal done. Yep. But sticking it out, again, if you have the leverage in order to do so, is always the right move. And a deal will get done eventually uh, if you're focused on getting a deal done. But you mm-hmm. just got to make sure it's the right one. And, and, and even though we had good advisors, you could still feel there's this like, let's just get it done type of motivation. And that's common. So it's it's really just managing the process with the professionals, mm-hmm. right? Um, and setting your expectations accordingly, right? If you have to walk away, know, know when, that, when that time is. Some of that pressure, you know, from deal fatigue from a buyer, it, it, it is true that they could move on because in the time that it's taken you to get to where you are today, they've probably looked at a hundred other opportunities and they're trying to decide where do we deploy our team and effort. And if something comes by that looks really, really attractive, uh, you know, they could say, hey, you know what, if we're not going to, if we can't settle this, we have to move on. And the ones to know if that is real or not are the industry specific investment bankers who know exactly what's going on in their industry. So, you know, it's, it's, it is our model. Um, and we can't believe that it isn't done this way every single time. But the insight that those people have, you just, if you choose, the, if you get the right team, you will get the right advice. So, I want to jump last to, you know, you you went off and started your own business, right? An advisory firm, a fractional CFO advisory firm. And, you know, after some success, you ended up selling that and selling it to a really good friend of mine who built something very similar, Aaron Spool. So, yeah, can you t- give me give me the the lowdown on building that business and and what made you decide to sell that? Yeah, so it wasn't a more of it wasn't a traditional, you know, M&A type sale. I've known Aaron for years. And it just goes to show you there's many different ways to cut the pie, right? So we, we agreed on some kind of revenue share. I bring my clients mm-hmm. over, I get a revenue share. So there was no, you know, big M&A closing date or anything like that. It was mm-hmm. more informal, but, you know, the upside for me, upside for him. And after we sold Gravity, I um, did a bit of consulting and I just found I, I really like working with, with, you know, small business owners and, and CEOs and understanding their pain points and helping use, you know, both finance and accounting to, to alleviate and, you know, educate them on their own business a lot of the times, mm-hmm. right? Identify pain points, identify trends. Uh, I, I tell everybody now, especially in this environment, we're in a show, not tell environment. So if you're out trying to raise money, you're out trying to sell your business, right? You better show you can get to the results that you want because people aren't buying empty promises anymore, right? The, the cycle has shifted. So you yep. got to show it. So that's managing your bottom line. That's managing your growth effectively, not having, you know, thousand percent increases of revenue, things yep. like that. And that really goes a long way in building credibility in the market and for your own business. So absolutely um, decided to, to just do that full time. Uh, I saw the need 
for finance professionals leaning into those businesses. But not everyone needs, you know, like we talked about, a full-time person <clears throat> managing that side of house. But many CEOs would like an advisor or would like someone to do, you know, a health check on what's going on and help understand a little bit more under the hood because they're just not focusing as much there. Uh, and then Aaron called and said he was, you know, hiring out the team and building it out. And, you know, there's an opportunity if I wanted to interview for it. And um, we were, we made it work out. So I'm at That's a, great. a firm called Aventus Advisory Group and I'll drop the, the link for you as well. Awesome. Yeah. And, and in full disclosure right now, we, we use that firm, right? When we, we run across a, a lot of entrepreneurs that need to be buttoned up before they go to market. And man, we have a great relationship and we bring a ton of value to founders that way. So, uh, it, you know, it's just serendipitous that you're on this team too and, and joined today. So yeah, I'd like to kind of finish here with, is there, is there any other advice? Have you given so many pieces along the way? Any other advice you'd give to kind of fellow founders of businesses when they're considering m and want the audience to, to take away three things. Um, first and foremost, like we said earlier, you know, run your business today like you're, you're going to sell it tomorrow. You never know when the, the call is going to come or when someone's interested in, in buying your business and being prepared is, is essential. Number two, um, you know, the M&A process is the ultimate sale. So again, presenting well, understanding your business, having things organized, um, crafting that narrative, super important to getting that premium valuation. And then number three, you know, know your worth. And they're all kind of interrelated, right? Know what your business is worth. Um, everyone deep down inside has that number that they know they'd walk away from the business for. But trust the advisors to make sure that you're aligned with what the market is telling you know, sellers uh, so that you can you know, reassess and, and get yourself the, the best deal at the right time. That's great. And just one last question. Is there one person out there that you would like to thank who's really contributed to your personal and professional success? Yeah, I just, I, I can't say enough great things about just my time spent with, with Mike Grillo over at, at Gravity and he's a good friend of mine today. And, um, you know, that relationship that we developed really is the you know epitome of, of what a CEO, CFO relationship should be. And working with him has been nothing short of fantastic. That's great. Greg, thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it. Todd, thanks for having me on. Real pleasure. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.